All right, reminder, also, I didn't say it in our announcements earlier, but uh, the first service tonight does have childcare for and under. It's just a reminder of that. And uh, it's the other Powells that are not up here that are going to be the ones working the nursery. So you can trust them and you can wear them out. It's great. Uh, but just a reminder that that's only in the first service, not the second service. So we come to our final Sunday of Advent. And just a reminder to you that Advent as a word comes from the Latin Adventus. It just means arrival. So Advent is a season where we emphasize the importance of Christ incarnate arriving. And that's been very consistent with the theme of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has brought the kingdom of heaven down to earth. That's why he came. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And on the first Sunday of Advent, we talked about the arrival of the church that's possessed by Jesus. We just kept going in our Matthew series, right? So he said, I will build my church. And the second week, we looked at the following text where we talked about how discipleship as defined by Jesus, has arrived, which is about denying ourselves and following after him. Last week on the third Sunday of Advent, we looked at the transfiguration of Jesus. We said what has arrived on earth is the glory of God that's beyond what we can imagine. Even that glimpse of what Peter, James, and John saw up on the mountain. And this morning, as we just keep going, we turn to Matthew 17, beginning in verse 14, and we see the arrival of Spiritual turbulence is kind of just something I put in your outline. The arrival of the battle because Christ's presence is real. And where Christ's presence is, the spiritual battle is worse than it was before his presence was there. And so we look at a scene that's all about the spiritual forces in this world. It's very intense. Let's talk about the spiritual forces of darkness in the world, just broadly speaking, the Bible tells us that the, the forces of evil and the principalities of this dark world have, have always been against Christ, against his people, even before Christ came, against God's way of rescue, against God's way of glory, against God's created design and order. That's how it's always been. And one of the things that we'll see potently this morning is that the closer the powerful presence of Jesus is to the forces against God and his people, the more explosive and turbulent it is for those in his kingdom. So we have a scene here that isn't real happy. It ends happy, but it's super intense. It's super intense. And I want you to think with me about how the incarnation itself, the very coming of Jesus, made things much more conflict-ridden than it did just calm and peace. We're going to sing Silent Night tonight. Think of the lyrics of Silent Night. Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright. Was everything calm when Christ himself came? Certainly it may have been for a brief moment there in Bethlehem. But think of what happened the very, very much right away in Bethlehem. What did the wicked, evil King Herod seek to do? He sought to kill all the newborn sons, infant sons, across Bethlehem and all the region. And so the Bible actually says God has shown up in the form of a humble baby. And then the conflict and the pain and the torment and the spiritual warfare, it increased all the more wherever Jesus was. He was the epicenter of it. So it's not just today's text. It's the whole incarnation. Something that fits well for a Christmas Eve day sermon. Let me ask you to stand and we will look at Matthew 17, 14 to 23. This is the word of God. I, I'm so thankful for where he has us in Matthew during this Advent season. We continue in the story. 
when they came to the crowd, as in they, James, John, Peter, with Jesus down from the mountain, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic. And he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is the word of God. Father, would you embolden our faith today? Would we understand who Jesus is and the nature of the battle that we're in and that when his presence, Jesus, when your presence is real among your church, that it means it will be turbulent. We ask you to give us confidence, though, in the victory that you have accomplished in your cross and resurrection. Would you help us just to grow in our faith today? In Christ's name I pray, amen. You may be seated. This is one of those texts where Matthew and doesn't tell us everything. In fact, we have to fill in the gaps a little bit to understand what's happened in this story. Matthew's very simple about it, very intentional in what he says. So what I'll do this morning is I'll rely some on the Gospel of Mark, because if you were looking at the different Gospels, the Gospel of Mark is by far the most robust. It fills in a lot of the gaps for us in this scene. So let's just start straight away. I want you to imagine with me this walk down the mountain for Jesus and his disciples. You talk about a descent back into the reality of this world. I said it last week, but if, the, if ever there was quite a, a doozy of a return from the mountaintop camp experience to real life, it would be this one. And you know, Peter and James and John, I mean, they were at camp and they met Moses and Elijah. And now they come back down with Jesus and there's a crowd. What we see is they walk right into a struggle that includes human limitation. It includes demonic torment. It includes suffering of physical health. And then what we see in the Gospel of Mark, which we'll look at, is it's actually a theological debate happening between the disciples and the scribes. There's this scene of theological opinions, which again, we don't see that in Matthew, but that's what's going on. Mark's Gospel tells us that the scribes and the disciples, they are arguing. And so when Jesus gets down from the mountain, People see him come, and we read that they go run to Jesus, and his first question is, what are you arguing about? The answer is not given by the disciples or the scribes. The, the voice that comes out of the crowd after that question is asked is from a father. He says, Jesus, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that's ruining him. This is Mark's account. Makes him mute. It seizes him, it throws him down, his mouth foams, his body becomes rigid. It's all in Mark's gospel. He said, Jesus, I brought him to your disciples, I brought him to you, but you weren't here. You were up on the mountain. And your other disciples, they tried, but they couldn't help. 
It's interesting. We recall that the disciples have been given authority to cast out demons. That happens in chapter 10, verse 8. And we know something wasn't wrong. So what's the implication of what they were arguing about? I think they were arguing about why the disciples couldn't heal the boy. I think they were arguing about who had authority to drive out a demon. You have a theological debate or discussion about a suffering child, and the suffering is happening right in their midst. And they're debating it. And so the first point in your outline is just to pull us in. I just make, I'm making a comment. Is that not, not very unsimilar to our world? Dissimilar? Don't we have human suffering all around us? People in pain. And one of the things that happens over and over is theological debate erupts as to what the problem is, what the solution is, whose authority is actually able to speak into this. Do we not see this happening all the time? And isn't it exhausting? I just want to pull you into this scene. The human suffering hasn't ended yet. There's a boy who needs to be saved, and the crowd is debating the cause of the problem, and the crowd is debating the proper solution, and in the midst of the debate, neither the scribes nor the disciples have the ability to heal this young boy. It's kind of sickening if you think of it. Right, Because in our world also, we know that everyone has a theological opinion about something. And even if someone says, I don't really point to any authority, they have an authority about the words that are coming out of their mouth, even if it's just their own feelings. Right, But this is the way it works in a theological debate. We have to know what the problem is, then we have to say, well, what's the solution? And based on what authority do you declare that's the solution? And if the disciples are saying, well, Jesus gave us authority to drive out demons, well, there's a problem, isn't there? Either you don't have the authority he gave to you, Either he did give the authority, but you're doing something wrong, or guess what? He's a liar, and he doesn't have the authority to give you any power over this incident. This is a theological discussion in the middle of human suffering, and I just wanted to pull us into that in the first point. It's not altogether different than our world. We move on. Jesus is now standing there. The solution is standing there amidst the suffering and amidst the debate. And so we have this collision with Jesus. We'll just enter into the reality of spiritual warfare in this text. Notice in Matthew's gospel, the father does not make it clear that it's a demon that's possessing his boy. Not in what we have. It's, it's referenced later in verse 18, Jesus cast out a demon. So it's in the story. But the father, he actually says, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. The word epileptic is not in the text. It's an editorial translation for a word that actually is more literally like this. Jesus, my son, is a lunatic. In other words, it's the same Greek root luna from which we get the word moon. So my son is moonstruck is kind of what's literally said here in Matthew. We know that the boy was possessed by a demon. In Matthew's account, Jesus drives him out. But the the picture the father does give is that there are very strategic times that my son is thrown down in his fit. Notice we see that. It's when he's near fire or it's when he's near water. My son's convulsions and fits happen in the most dangerous of places. What's the implication? What Mark says explicitly. The demon's trying to wreck the boy. He's trying to destroy him. That's what the spiritual forces in this world do. They seek to destroy those who need to be rescued from sin and from suffering. We know we live in a world with spiritual warfare. We don't talk about it all the time, but there are spiritual forces of darkness in this world. Paul writes about that. It's true all across the scriptures. 
that there is a spiritual enemy cast out of heaven, if you will, who has authority over the kingdom of this world, has demons that serve him, and knows that his time is short. We've been looking that through the Gospel of Matthew. It's not stuff we talk about too often. But think with me, not just is it through all the scriptures, but we see evidences of spiritual forces against God and his kingdom in our very lives and world. I was directed this week to news stories. Maybe you've been following this. The Satanic Temple has now begun offering after-school Satan Club in elementary schools across our country. Shocking. You read the description, and they try to make it sound like it's not what it is, but ultimately you have a world in which the spiritual forces of darkness are seeking to destroy the minds and the bodies of those who were made in the image of God for the glory of God. Maybe in your life, you would say, I know individuals or I have personally before I was set free in Christ, experienced deep forces of spiritual darkness that oppressed me. There's a few stories of my own pastoral ministry that I I rarely share because I'm not called to preach my experiences. But where I knew without a shadow of a doubt, this is not anything other than something darker than I've ever imagined being in the room with or around. Maybe you know that in your own life at times. And so we we look at this text and it shouldn't altogether surprise us. But look what Jesus says. He says, verse 17, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? He gives his commentary on his own generation. He uses two words, faithless and twisted. The word twisted is the word perverse. Think with me about these two descriptions. Faithless means not trusting in the Lord, not trusting in God. Twisted or perverse means that people's sense of right and wrong, of truth and error is upside down. It's all contorted. I think it's interesting. He summarizes the spiritual warfare with that suffering happening right in front of him. And he uses the word faithless and twisted. I would say to you, he's referencing things on both sides of the problem. Right? So there's people that should know who he is, should know because they profess faith in him coming as the the king of kings. And yet he says, you're faithless right now. You're trying to do things in your own power, which we'll see in a moment, but you're not filled with faith as to what I really came for. So he's saying that to one side. On the other side, those who do not believe at all, they're so twisted up, you don't know what right is from wrong. You don't know what authority you even point to to prove it. I would say to you, this is his commentary on the spiritual warfare that you and I know. There's sin, there's struggle, there's suffering, and we are often prone to profess what we believe, but in moments we walk around faithless or we refuse to acknowledge what God has revealed as truth and we twist it to our own ends and we don't believe anything about who God is. It's two sides of the same struggle. The struggle is exasperating to Jesus. That's what we note. How long am I going to endure you? He says. Like, how long? B.B. Warfield He wrote a work called On the Emotional Life of the Lord, of our Lord, excuse me. He says it belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity that he was subject to all sinless human emotions. Jesus is sinlessly exasperated right here. I'm so exasperated that you're not getting it. Of course, he would be this emotional because I think the scene, if we look at it closely, it is escalating to a place of intense emotions. Maybe you've been in a situation that was here and you had one thing and then it's here and your bursting out came when it escalated to a point that you didn't think you could bear. 
Matthew's gospel doesn't show us the escalation, but Mark's does tremendously. And here's what I want to point out to you. So when they brought the boy to Jesus, here's what we read in Mark's gospel, Mark 9. When the spirit inside the boy saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy who fell on the ground, rolling and foaming at the mouth. And so it's while this is happening, that's when Jesus says, how long has this been happening to the father? And the father says, since childhood. So Jesus has a mini conversation with the father, but as soon as Jesus is near the demon, the spirit throws the boy into a greater fit because of the presence of Jesus. So I think the picture we have here is incredible that where the presence of Christ shows up, the turbulence with the spiritual forces of this dark world increase all the more. The closer the living, powerful presence of Jesus is, the more explosive is the conflict. Think with me of Matthew 8 when we saw the two men by the tombs. Remember, Jesus showed up and they said, to, the, the demon said, what have you to do with us, O son of God? We know who you are. We know you're going to come, but we want to know why you've come to torment us before the time. His presence increased the turbulence. That's the scene here. James Edwards, in his commentary, he says, the initial result of the effective presence of Jesus is not peace, it's conflict. We don't see that in Matthew. Matthew just says they brought the boy to Jesus and he healed the boy instantly. Mark 9 says this at the very end of the interaction before Jesus released the boy from the demon. We read that the spirit convulsed the boy terribly and then the boy fell down like a corpse as though dead. It just got worse because of the battle that raged. We know that Jesus reached out his hand and helped the boy come up. Matthew doesn't include any of that, but think with me of the trauma of the scene. Let me be trite for a minute. This is the opposite of what happens to me when I take one of our family vehicles into the shop. Just track with me for a second. I'm not trying to minimize this, but when I take a vehicle to the shop with a, with a problem, it's got a noise, it's got a shake. I trust my mechanic greatly. I love my mechanic. I explain it to him and he says, well, we'll, we'll check it out, Jim, and I'll give you a call. It's always frustrating to me when he calls me and says, I'm sorry, Jim, we couldn't seem to duplicate the problem. Like, we didn't hear a noise. We didn't feel a shake. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. The demon inside of my car is hiding from you because he knows that you're the solution. It's the exact opposite when it comes to spiritual warfare. And I think you'll sense the importance of this if you're a Christian who's walking with Jesus who feels like the battle's getting harder. Because the way it works in the gospel is that when Jesus comes face to face with the demon, the demon explodes. Jesus doesn't have to take the Father's word for it that since childhood this boy's been tormented. The minute Jesus' presence is near the boy and his father, it comes to the service, surface with venom, with angst. There's heightened spiritual turbulence with the arrival of Jesus. How's that for an Advent theme this morning? There is heightened spiritual turbulence wherever the presence of Jesus arrives. It arrived with the incarnation, but Christ is supposed to be in us, the hope of glory. And if you are increasing in your walking in obedience and wanting to honor the Lord and wanting to live a life of sacrificial self-denial because Christ did so for you, then you can expect that the more the presence of Christ is real in your life, 
the turbulence will be far greater. Well, the scene ends and the crowd disperses. You can imagine the silence, I think, right? Because they've been arguing about why the disciples couldn't do it. And all of a sudden, the boy is standing there. Imagine the weeping of the father, the silent awkwardness of how foolish the debate had been when the solution is right there now. Mark tells us that the disciples went into a house with Jesus and that's where they were when they privately asked him the question. They say, well, why couldn't we cast it out? Like, did we do something wrong? Why not? And Jesus' answer we have in our text, it's because of your little faith. That's why. You couldn't do anything in this battle. So the next outline point I have for you is the problem for the disciples is the reality of their tiny faith, even though they were the faithful. We've been talking about this in the Gospel of Matthew. These men had followed Jesus. They'd left everything. They believed in who he was. But in moments like this, they act as though they have no faith at all. Well, where do we see that in the text? Well, I'll show you. But let's consider what Jesus actually says. He says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here over to there. And with that kind of faith, nothing will be impossible for you. Here's what he's saying to them. Apparently your small faith, your little faith, is even tinier than mustard seed side faith. And a mustard seed is tiny. So I think what he's saying is, you, my boys, you operated with next to no faith in the moment of battle. And this is why I said to you as we started, I think it's a very intense text for us on this Christmas Eve day. Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, you need to have faith the size of a redwood to deal with this one. He says, no, even the tiniest mustard seed size faith could, could deal with this could move a mountain. And we don't know what the problem was for the disciples. Maybe they're trusting in themselves. I would assume that's what it is. I mean, they had previous authorization to cast out demons. Maybe they were trusting in their past successes. Do you ever do that? Trust in ways you've seen God use you in your past and you feel like that equips you and makes you ready for the present. We trust in our rhythms, we trust in our rituals, we trust in our past performance, we trust in the reputation others think about us. Jesus says, no, you just have to have the tiniest amount of faith of why I came. I'll just ask if you know this struggle. On the one hand, you say, I believe. I believe. I believe Jesus is the, the king sent from heaven. He was fully man but fully God. I believe that what happened with the transfiguration that we looked at last week really happened. He has that much glory. Maybe you'd say, that's me. I'm not just a come to church on Christmas Eve or Easter person. It's like my everything. And if you're here for that, I'm happy about that. I'm just giving an illustration. He's talking to the people that this is their everything. This is their everything. But in the next moment, here's my question. Do you know that spiritual war? that torpedoes your faith and you actually face a moment of battle with zero faith. How do we know it's functionally zero faith? Well, let's walk through this. This is amazing. Because it's not unique to the disciples. It's not unique to us. In Mark's gospel, here's what the father said to Jesus. In the middle of that scene, the father said, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus responds to the Father and he says, if you can, 
All things are possible for the one who believes. And then the father shouted out, I believe, help my unbelief. I don't know if you knew that. That's the same story. If you're familiar with that sentence, that's this story. That's this father. I believe, help my unbelief. It is the dilemma of being a human who's a child of God who believes that Jesus is who he says he is, that we live with faith while not believing often times, don't we? John Calvin said it this way. These two statements may appear to contradict one another, but there are none of us that do not experience both of them in himself. Our faith is never perfect, so it follows that we are partly unbelievers. Not just the Father. It's the same lesson Jesus gives to his disciples. I'm guessing it's your struggle and it's mine. I believe, but then I don't believe. Which means that what we actually have to have faith in is that God would cover what lacks in our unbelief. Philosophically, try this out for a second. If we believe the word of God is true, and I think most of you that I know do, then we can say, well, I believe that God has saved me from sin and death and Satan and the wrath of God. I believe all those things because they're in the scriptures. I believe those things to be true. But here's what the text is saying to us. It means God also came to save us from what we don't have faith to believe. Sort of a, wait, what? He came to save me, not from what I believe I need to be saved from, but he came to save me from what I'm not believing when I'm not believing the power he gave to save me. That's the glory of what has arrived in God, in Christ. So then our next very practical question was, well, what does this faith look like? And this is where we'll kind of start to close. What does it look like? Well, we have to use Mark again to understand it, but I would say to you, faith looks like bold, desperate prayer. Prayer is faith that turns toward God, as one commentator said. Now, if you have the ESV Bible, I can't vouch for all of them, I didn't look for every, through every translation. Did you notice that verse 21 is missing from your Bible? There might be a note there. My Bible jumps from verse 20 to verse 22. Here's what verse 21 would say. It might be in your notes. This kind of demon possession never comes out except for by prayer and fasting. The reason it's not in your English translation is because it was only in a few rare Greek original manuscripts in the Gospel of Matthew, so it's omitted. But in Mark chapter 9, verse 29, it is in Mark's Gospel in one of the reliable manuscripts found in the original. And here's what Mark 9.29 says. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What's the implication? I think it's terrifying. It means the disciples tried to do that entire exchange with a demon without even asking God the Father for help. That's what prayer is. Faith that turns to God. They sought to save this little boy. They sought to answer the request of the father. They sought to cast out a demon and they didn't even ask God for help. I think I've preached some sermons before where I didn't ask for help. I think I've tried to parent my kids in moments that required an immense amount of wisdom and I didn't ask for help. I think I tried to be a good boy this week so God would be pleased with me. Wanting to justify myself and I didn't ask for any help. Christian, I would ask you, do you know what faith feels like when you ask God for help in the battle that you're in? 
Ask for God's help to even ask for forgiveness. Ask for God's help so you'll reconcile with another sinner the way God's reconciled with you. Ask for God's help over power and the, the power of sin and its temptation, over that addiction, over that perpetual lie, over the consequences you can't control. I could just go on and on. Do you ask God for help? You pray for the glory of God, for the purity of, of His church. If you're a parent, do you ask for God's help for your children's sake? If you're a part of this church, do you pray for and ask for God to help your brothers and sisters in this very room, some of whom are going through battles you have never had to face and it is harder than you can imagine? Do you ask for God's help for them? Faith that moves mountains is a praying faith. Faith that moves mountains is a progressive faith. And here's what I mean by that. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do you move a mountain? One shovel full or whatever accessible equipment you have at a time. Sure, with faith, God can move a whole mountain. We ask him to move and it'll move. But you know what I think it also means? It means faith means I will do the next obedient thing in this battle right now. And it'll feel like one shovel at a time. Faith that moves mountains is not self-reliant. Faith that moves mountains is always fresh. It's always in the moment. It's never ritualistic. doesn't just rely on the past. Faith that moves mountains is dependent on God to do the impossible. And that's where the text takes us in verse 22. How about the impossible like becoming a man who humbled himself in the form of a child who then in verse 22 tells us he came to suffer and die on the cross and rise from the dead for our rescue. He arrived for what purpose? So that the escalating battle of spiritual turbulence, of all the forces of this dark world would be landing on him. Not on you and not on me, but on him. In his suffering that he didn't deserve, in his temptations that he didn't fall to, in his cross that was both his way of victory over sin and death, but also his way of paying the penalty of God's wrath for those who fail to believe. And so we close up, and I would ask you, do you believe that? And you say, well, yes, I believe. I hope you say that. Yes, I believe. Well, here's what I think is the reality or the barometer of our faith. It's your final point. It's whether or not we still live in distress that Jesus had to do that. He had to suffer and die because of the kind of evil that was against us, against him. Look in verse 23. It's kind of shocking. We, we closed the whole, the whole section out and they were greatly distressed. <laughs> wait, wait. Why were they distressed? Well, maybe is it because their tiny faith means they still don't understand why he came? To die sin's death and to receive the wrath of God for their behalf? Or we can say, well, hold the phone. It might be something different. What if the distress is actually progress here? One commentator I read this week, he said, if it distressed them, at least they were beginning to listen. Because prior to this moment, whenever Jesus spoke of his cross and resurrection, they argued with him. Or they didn't understand it, or they didn't listen at all. Maybe if they're distressed about his coming death, at least they believe him. 
And that's progress. Let me ask you, are you often distressed at the turbulent battle that you are in and that the church is in? In one regard, I would say to you, that's probably progress because it means you're listening and it means you know that sin will and does destroy those who are not protected by God in Christ. And so maybe it distresses you because you believe it to be true. But I would say to you that if we truly believe, then the distress cannot linger. It must not linger. I call you with me to believe that Jesus already collided with Satan. The escalated war against Christ and his people, he suffered it on the cross. He was victorious in his resurrection. He ascended to the Father and he will return to create a new heavens and a new earth that has no spiritual turbulence and that knows no distress. You say, well, if you believe that, if you believe that, what do you do? Well, you probably end up having more reason to pray because the more you believe that, the more the presence of Christ is going to be real to you and the closer the presence of Christ is to evil, the more turbulent it'll feel. And so we circle all the way back around and what's a prayer we'll close with this morning? I think the prayer is very simple. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to move mountains with faith for my family, for the church. One obedient, faith-filled act at a time. And so let's pray toward that end as we then take the Lord's Supper. Father, we ask that you'd help us to believe in what Jesus came to accomplish. We ask you'd help our unbelief. We thank you for what you've done in Christ that was victorious, that anchors our faith, that he took the escalated battle upon himself that we would never be able to survive. Lord, he took the wrath of God that we were worthy and due. He conquered the one who would destroy us through his resurrection. We ask you to give us faith now to believe. And Lord, in moments of unbelief, we ask you to surround us with brothers and sisters in Christ who remind us of all that Jesus has accomplished for us. So this is our prayer today. We thank you for this Christmas Eve, Lord's Day worship. We understand the battle arrived with intensity at his incarnation. We understand we're still in it, but as Christ is in us, the hope of glory, would we anticipate that glory when the battle ends? This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.